Our class here has a tradition only once every seven years does this class, has this class not met. And so when do you think that might be? Well, actually, it's twice every seven years. No, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. That's the only time this, this class has not met, I think, probably for 20 years, I think. Only when it's uh, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. So you guys are helping, helping me keep up the, uh, keep up the tradition of, uh, <laughs> of meeting. So, All right, let's pray. Our Father, we just think it is a wonderful thing <clears throat> that you have put in us a love for your word because it's a, it's a love for you and who you are. And so we are grateful uh, to, to have those desires. They weren't natural, Lord, in us. And uh, you planted them when you recreated us and gave us a new birth. And we are forever grateful. Lord, we pray for those uh, that can't be with us, uh, those that are struggling uh, with physical affliction, uh, once again, that your presence be real and that you encourage us not, not to forget them in any way, Lord, and help us uh, give of ourselves in various ways uh, to others in our body. Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you for your gospel. Uh, we pray that you give us ever stronger belief and trust in you ourselves and that you help us be faithful to your word, uh, to spread it, to teach our children, our grandchildren, Lord, and those around us, that you would give us open door and more opportunities and help us be faithful, Lord, on those that you do give us and uh, give us a uh, a boldness and uh, give us the the ability not to fear rejection uh, when we would speak your word or defend who you are. Uh, deliver us from the fear of man and, and help us never be ashamed of you or your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we kind of had our textual criticism class as we spent a lot of our time dealing with the ending of the Gospel of Mark. We, have, we had dealt with all the other uh, Great Commission accounts and everything, and we uh, conspicuously, we hadn't done Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. And we did that in some detail last week, both as a lesson a lesson about the issues of our New Testament text as well as that passage itself. And I said that I would, uh, having dealt with all of that, we would look at the passage uh, briefly tonight before we go on, that majority of everything that is in that passage is uh, attested in the New Testament. And so we're at Mark, if you want to, uh, Mark 16 beginning in verse 9. Uh, 9 down through 20. And we might, I'm just going to quickly walk through these verses again, but if you really want the detail of this, I'd encourage you, if you didn't watch the video or get the audio on this, if you're interested in these subjects of textual criticism and textual variance, 
that you get last week's lesson. And uh, there's multiple, interest, more than one explanation about this portion in Mark as to where the gospel ends and uh, if Mark did intend to end that at verse 7 and 8, well, why did he intend to do that if that is where he ended? Or is it possible that we, he never completed the gospel? Uh, just like the book of Acts seems like it's almost like not completed. The book of Acts ends that way. That's perhaps he never completed it. Or perhaps uh, the last page of the Codex was lost. That's also possible. We discuss all that kind of stuff and the reasons for and against its inclusion. I, I lean to the fact that I lean toward it's not part of the original Mark. It's, I, I lean that way. Uh, but it's interesting what is in it. We'll talk about that tonight a little bit. So beginning in verse 9, so um, nearly everything in verses 9 through 20 is affirmed elsewhere in the New Testament. So regarding verse 9, uh, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Well, we know that Jesus did appear to Mary Magdalene, but we know it wasn't first. Uh, but he did appear privately to her after she had returned to the tomb. And uh, <clears throat> so, and we know that the fact that the Lord had cast seven demons out of her is also attested in, in Luke, uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, which just, you know, I, I, I don't know if I've ever stopped just to think about that. And yesterday when I was doing this, that the Lord had cast seven demons out of this lady. And uh, she obviously was forever grateful. And that's evident about her love and devotion toward, toward the Lord. Um, if the Lord can do that, he can, do, he can deliver us from anything. So, so that, that's verse 9. Regarding verses 10 and 11, uh, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Now, we know that, that is, uh, that's quite similar. Uh, Matthew and Mark, Luke tells us it wasn't only Mary Magdalene that gave the report, but the other, the other women with her. They all gave this report to the apostles, and they didn't believe. And this text agrees with that. They, they did not believe the women, including Mary Magdalene, uh, the first time she, she gave that report. And we find that uh, also in uh, verses 12 through 13. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked along the road. Well, what, what did we think that is? Yeah, the road to Emmaus when Jesus appeared to the to the, the two disciples on the road on the road to Emmaus, <clears throat> and so we know that that is in Luke, verse twelve. When they went into the country, and though verse thirteen we have that we have no record, and and they went and told it to the rest, but that we have a record of, but they did not believe them either. Now that's that doesn't fit with Matthew and Luke. Well, Luke reports the incident on the road to Emmaus, and they're not believing them 
either the, the apostles not believing the two, that the account in Luke is not that way. The, those on the road to Emmaus show up that night and they find the other disciples already discussing that he is risen. And then they share their, ver, their story of what happened on the road. So that is inconsistent uh, <clears throat> with the account in Luke. Uh, as far as verses 12 and 13. So, uh, let's see. We got, let's see, verse 14. Later, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven as they sat at table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he was risen. Well, um, <clears throat> That sounds like the Gospel of Mark, actually. We, 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 last week we mentioned a lot of these verses don't sound like Mark. But this one, Mark is the hardest on the disciples of any of the Gospel authors about their slowness to believe. And, 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 what, and one a passage where the others say, Oh, you of little faith. Mark has it, Oh, you of no faith. <laughs> so Mark is har- harshest most critical of the slowness of the apostles believing. And that emphasis runs throughout this uh, last section in the Gospel. So here the Lord, uh, He certainly appeared to the eleven. We saw that. That was on the night of Resurrection Day when Jesus finally appeared to them. And did He rebuke? We don't have a account that He did that. in the other Gospels, we know that Jesus rebuked or reproved the two on the road to Emmaus. He said of them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. And we know that Jesus gently confronted Thomas. Thomas, you know, do you believe because you've seen? And so Jesus did, in a sense, correct them about their slowness of belief, which Verse 14 here is, is mentioning that. Um, 15 and 16, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now that's very similar to the Matthew's Great Commission passage as well as Luke. Preach all the nations. Uh, go into all the nations and uh, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And uh, so verse 16 there, all of this, this 15 and 16, remind us of the Great Commission text in Luke and Matthew. And interesting, verse 16 here, but, uh, but he who does not believe will be condemned. What does that remind you of? in the Gospels. Yeah, John chapter 3. Yeah, the very, the very latter part of John chapter 3, it almost you know, explicitly says that. You're condemned already. And uh, two places in John 3, verses 18, and John 3, verse 36. That, that sounds really like um, those texts in John 3. So let's see, 17 and 18. Uh, let's scroll up here <clears throat> on 17 and 18. And these signs will follow those who believe. 
in, in my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues or languages, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, anybody that's read the, the, early, the early chapters of the book of Acts, or anybody that lived in those early decades after Jesus' resurrection, would testify to almost everything in this list. They would testify to all of these things. Um, one that's perhaps not testified to in the book of Acts is this matter about if they drink anything deadly. Uh, that doesn't seem to be anywhere in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. And the church fathers have an interesting discussion about this. And they, they use it, it looks like they use it figuratively of false doctrine that the true saints cannot be harmed by false doctrine. It's interesting, the historical references about that, and it's referred to like drinking um, the false doctrine. Or, and so that, that's the only one that we don't find. As far as they will take up serpents, the what's the closest thing we have to that and not be harmed? Paul, in Paul's case, when he, well, he did pick up a serpent thinking it was a stick, right? And it was a snake. And and he wasn't harmed, and all the natives there expected him to die. And that's such a quite a passage. He he goes from being uh, a villain because oh he must have done something really evil because he got bit by the snake, and then he ends up being a god. <laughs> and it just shows you that providence of God. You can't really always read what what that means. <laughs> so so that perhaps uh, so. Uh, but certainly these things, the casting out of demons, the healing the sick, uh, speaking in other languages, those, those things were pretty commonplace in, in, the early, uh, in the early decades of the New Testament church, beginning at, beginning at Pentecost. Um, okay, so let's keep, what else do we have then? What does that leave us? Oh, verse 19. Yeah, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right at the right hand of God. Well, that that sounds very close to Acts chapter one. It's almost almost identical to the ascension that's recorded in Acts chapter one. Now, interestingly, but what is unique here in verse nineteen is this phrase: "and sat down at the right hand of God." None of the gospels say that. They say he ascended. And um, uh, now that is referred to when Jesus quotes uh, Psalm 110. But that expression is central in the early preaching in Acts chapter 1 and 2, Acts chapter 2 and 3. They, the apostles are explicit that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And so that <clears throat> is affirmed in Acts. And it... it uh, kind of sounds like Acts uh, there, verse, verse 19. Um, yeah, from the very beginning. Okay, that's not where I mixed up. <laughs> Page 2. We might get through all of these. 
Well, that was only one column. <laughs> so, regarding verse 20, and uh, this kind of sounds like a summary of the book of Acts. And they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So that sounds like a summary of the book of Acts, actually. So let's see. Um, last comment on this. Uh, if Mark 16, 9 through 20 was written using the canonical Gospels. You can see a lot of this material. You can see it's like, it seems like it's borrowed from Luke especially. So if this section was written using the canonical Gospels and not mainly from oral tradition, that would place this in the early to mid-2nd century. Right? Because if he's drawing this from the canonical Gospels, those Gospels have to be written, and they were written, you know, from like 65 to 90. And if th whoever wrote this, if it wasn't Mark, is drawing from those, that's going to tell you this was written early, early first century. And uh, if that is the case, there's a lot of ifs here, but if that is the case, it just gives you kind of a window into how the church, or at least this author, is thinking in the early first century. Okay, and so <clears throat> if it came from oral tradition, it could have been written earlier. But if it's actually drawing off of Matthew, Luke, and John, if it's actually drawing off those gospels, and someone besides Mark wrote this, then it's written. Then it's written late. It's written later. So, uh, and it confirms a lot of the basic cardinal beliefs of the Christian faith. Uh, so, okay, any, any comments or questions before we move off of that? Okay. Very good. All right, well, we're still in these 40 days, and we are now coming to the last uh, bit of the 40 days. And in order to pick that up, we have to go to Acts chapter 1. Okay. And because Luke has some statements here about what took place during that 40 days between resurrection and ascension. And in Acts chapter 1, uh, <clears throat> we're going to start around verse 3. Okay. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, let me. He's writing to Theophilus. We'll we'll deal with these earlier verses in Acts later when we start to move on beyond the ascension. But right now we're focused on that forty days. And Luke describes uh, verse three, to whom, referring to the disciples, to whom Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible infallible proofs being seen by them for 40 days during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on that tonight and being assembled together with them he commanded them to depart 
to not, de not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's, I'm going to just read on through. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? Well, I don't know. That's probably what I would have been doing, but... <laughs> Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So that'll be our passage for the rest of, of this evening. And this is actually going to wrap up our historical emphasis treatment. And Lord willing, next week we'll back up some and pull out some key theological themes from the latter part of the Gospels that we still need to do uh, before we move on. <clears throat> so let's look at these verses from Luke. They describe those 40 days. And uh, <clears throat> the first thing is, um, beginning in verse 3, or was that in 2? Ah, I'm sorry, I should have read verse 2. Okay. Until the day in which he was taken up after, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. I'm sorry, I should have read that verse. Um, something that's unique about Luke is Luke, in a number of key places, makes a point to distinguish between disciple and apostle. Matthew and Mark don't do that, but Luke very explicitly does that. And, and we think, I think that's very significant because the apostolic gift is unique and it's the twelve and it's not repeated. We're, but we're all disciples. In other words, um, all are disciples, but not all are apostles. <laughs> okay. The apostles, are, the apostles are disciples as well as apostles. And here, Luke explicitly says, through the Holy Spirit, having given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, so he sets those twelve apart. Now we know there were more disciples present during these 40 days than just the eleven. There were quite a number of more disciples. So, all I'm saying is this is a place where we see a strong distinction between disciple and apostle. And Luke does that at least, I think, at least one time, if not a couple times, when he writes his Gospels. 
that he, and out of his disciples he chose twelve that whom he also called apostles. So, uh, Luke cements that connection between Jesus and the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay? Uh, and he, so he, he does not simply refer to them as disciples. Okay. And, he, and then what Luke also does here is he explicitly identifies them. He names all 11 of them. And he did the same thing in his gospel. But here again, he names the 11. And that's all significant, of course, because they are the foundation. Their, their word and their preaching of Christ forms the foundation of the New Testament church. So Luke is showing us where the authority rests. So, an apostle is a commissioned messenger who is to deliver the message of the one who sent him. And he is invested with the authority of the sender. And that's what these eleven were. To receive or reject the messenger's word is to receive or reject the one who sent him. And that is completely clear. Uh, you cannot reject the writings of the apostles without, at the same time, you're rejecting Jesus who sent them. So many people, of course, try to do that. We like some of the things. We like, we'll just stick with Jesus and what he said. We don't want Paul. No way. We don't want him. We, we just want Jesus. And, and there's a branch of liberal theology that basically said that Paul hijacked Christianity, right? Have you ever heard that? Yeah, Paul, Jesus gave us authentic Christianity and his moral teaching and all this, and it's Paul that hijacked it. Paul hijacked it from Jesus. No, we don't believe that. Paul is Jesus' chosen instrument to help explain and understand what actually happened during those three years of Jesus' life and his death and resurrection. So, okay, enough, enough on that. Um, so, Luke goes on there in verse 3 and states that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many certain or infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. And so Luke reports again that, that Jesus was with these men for 40 days. And one of the things that he was doing is he was showing himself alive. And we don't know how many times he met with them. You know, I think he met more than the ones we have recorded. And, and Luke here, you know, he, he, for 40 days, you get the idea here, he met with him every day when you read that statement. So, um, uh, he, he's, they're, they're the witnesses. They, they are the first-hand literal witnesses to Jesus' being alive after, uh, after his, his uh, suffering. Uh, so, he's equipping them, of course, to be the literal witnesses to his resurrection, which is what he told them in John chapter 15 and 16 and 17 he would do. So that was the purpose of these 40 days, is to equip them in that sense. 
Um, so, Luke also tells us what's happening here is um, seen by them during 40 days, and he was speaking to them, and speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And I want, I want to spend some time here. Um, and are some of you freezing the air conditioner? Did <laughs> you feel great? Okay. Marianne's uh, pulling her sweater around her. <laughs> okay, so during those 40 days, Jesus is speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And I desire to elaborate on this. Uh, what might these things be? And, and here it is important not to take our preferred version of eschatology and read it back into the text. So when Luke wrote this, there's no book of Revelation, okay? There, there's, no, there's no revelation. And uh, so a lot of people try to read the millennium the millennial kingdom of the revelation, they try to read that back into every place we see the phrase, the kingdom of God. And I don't think that's the best approach. But, of course, we're not going to divide over eschatology. But what, what does he have in mind when, when Luke says this, that, that he has been speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God? Well, I think the simplest way to answer that is is however, Luke recorded Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God throughout his gospel. Okay? And we know that you know, Luke has the, the, the parables of the kingdom and how Jesus talks about the kingdom. So, so this is not a new subject. And Luke has written Jesus' teaching throughout, about the kingdom throughout his gospel. And I would expect that what this means here is exactly what we would get if we go back and read all of the Gospel of Luke and, and as, as Luke captures Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, I would expect what's happening during these 40 days is very much like Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God in the Gospel itself, uh, which is going to be very pertinent to them and their mission that he's going to send them on. And, and I think it's a stretch to think what he's talking about here is a millennial kingdom that's going to happen 2,000 years. No, he's equipping them for, to preach the gospel of the kingdom as he has been doing that. So, so um, uh, that's what I think he's doing. And uh, <clears throat> let me get in my notes here. Um, yeah, and if and if 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 you want to see what that teaching about the kingdom is, go in our study here. Go back to chapter four, and in chapter four in our study, we have a section on Jesus's teaching on the kingdom of God. There's a whole summary there, and we walk through all the kingdom parables, and all those kingdom parables describe. Uh, the, the idea, the concept of the kingdom of God. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to summarize that just a little bit here. Um, 
when the kingdom teaching in Luke's gospel is allowed to speak for itself, we realize that Jesus is inaugurating the messianic kingdom and the repeated exhortation beginning with John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, was to be understood literally. Jesus is the king. He has come. Israel's not ready. They need to repent because the kingdom is appearing when the king appears. So the messianic kingdom of God was inaugurated with Jesus' first coming. Now the language, we're using the language carefully, it was inaugurated, it began. Okay? And it began when he sat down at the right hand of God and began to reign. And that, that inauguration, that beginning of the messianic kingdom is based upon his death, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is about to occur. However, the kingdom Jesus is establishing is not a restoration of the Israelite theocracy. Okay. And that's what they need to get. That's what the disciples need to get. Jesus is not restoring the Israelite theocracy. And Jesus' numerous kingdom parables sought to make that clear. And again, if you go back to chapter 4, we develop that more quickly. But if you just want to proof text it that the kingdom is beginning then, right then, the proof of that that kingdom has come and was present is that people are entering the kingdom during Jesus' ministry. And Jesus taught, quote, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And so right there, Jesus is telling them, okay, um, John the Baptist, since that time, the law and the prophets were, what, until John. That's the ending of the previous arrangement. There is a massive change in the kingdom the law and the prophets are until John. Now, what happens after John? See that? What happens after? Since that time, something new. What? The kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is pressing into it. Jesus is the focal point, the transition. There is now the kingdom of God is being announced and preached. And everyone is pressing into it. So it's becoming a present reality. The, the messianic kingdom has become a present reality with the coming of Jesus Christ and his death, resurrection, and ascension and sitting down at the right hand of God. That kingdom is being realized now and in Jesus. So, so uh, just a few other statements. On another occasion, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. And that's what was happening in Jesus' ministry, wasn't it? The tax collectors and the harlots were repenting and they were entering the kingdom before the self-righteous. The kingdoms that become a present reality. 
The third, the third statement from Jesus is that, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, what? surely the kingdom of God what? has come upon you. And, and of course, Jesus does cast out demons by the finger of God, and Jesus is the king, and the kingdom of God has come, come upon you. So, um, Jesus is teaching these men, trying to help them understand that. So, for Jesus, the gospel, for Jesus, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that God's saving reign through His Son among Jews and Gentiles has begun. The saving reign, God's saving reign through His Son amongst Jews and Gentiles has begun. That's the good news. That's the good news of the coming of the kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom. It comes and it saves the remnant of Israel and the Gentiles hope in this, hope in Him, in the Messiah. So, um, of course, Old Testament lines up with this if we understand it correctly. We know from Psalm 2, and I won't turn there, we've been through that in earlier studies, we know from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 that God has installed His King. Jesus, on His holy hill of Zion. And what? And the nations have been given to Him as His inheritance. That's all done. That has taken place. The nations belong to Jesus Christ. Okay, Psalm 2 and 110. God's sovereign rule over all things has been transferred to His Son. God's a sovereign over all the nations. That's the Old Testament doctrine. Okay? That sovereign rule of God over all the nations has been transferred to His Son, the Messiah. I have installed my King on my holy hill. And you read Psalm chapter 2, and the nations are called to come and do homage to the Lord's King. We are living in that period of time now. So, And then Jesus, of course, affirms that with his statement and Jesus said what that all authority what in heaven and on earth has been given to me all right has been given to me and what that are to do they are to go what into all nations and make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ that's the inauguration that's the beginning of the kingdom that's the mission that these apostles are going to be sent on when the Holy Spirit is outpoured. Is that Jesus is Lord. All the nations belong to Him. He's come not only to save Israel, but He's also come to save those amongst all the nations. And that is all taking place as Jesus is seated at the, at the right hand of God. So, okay. Um, they were also instructed to wait for the promise of the Father before they begin their mission. Verses 4 and 5. And being assembled, and being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait 
for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay? So, don't leave town. <laughs> don't leave town. And don't start your mission yet, but it'll all be clear in not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, John baptized with water. Okay, I want, I want to make a few comments here. Uh, they had been in Galilee, obviously, but they are now back in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them to wait there in Jerusalem. Uh, which is why, by the way, I'm sorry, this is sidetrack. I shouldn't do this. But you're, you're the cream of the crop of students. The Bethany from which Jesus ascended is not the Bethany beyond the Jordan because... It's the Bethany by Jerusalem because he told them to wait here in Jerusalem. And, they, and it's a Sabbath day's journey. That's, that's the key, the Sabbath day's journey. The Bethany from Jerusalem to the Bethany of the Ascension is a Sabbath day's journey. So you, you made me think through this. <laughs> I think it's the Bethany near Jerusalem. And it's only Luke, Luke puts a comment, a Sabbath day's journey. They return to Jerusalem, and he says a Sabbath day's journey. Well, what's interesting about that is the Pharisees had... Uh, I'm going to toss it to you. <laughs> um, the Pharisees had instituted what that distance was. Yeah. Um, in other words, it wasn't that they could walk the whole day. The Pharisees only allowed them to walk right. so far, and that was and how far they were allowed to walk, the max distance happened to be the distance right. between... Bethany and Jerusalem. Right, but the point is, if it's this other Bethany yeah. beyond the Jordan, that was up north. Yeah. And it's no way is that a Sabbath day's journey oh, right. back 30, to Jerusalem. miles or so, 30 miles. Right. So, so I think the ascension is the Bethany that was just a f three or four miles outside of Jerusalem, I, I think. So... But you put that bug in my head <laughs> some time ago, <laughs> and, and, and as I was studying this, oh, it's Sabbath day's journey. All right, let's go back now to uh, they're waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the, of, of the Father. They're waiting, and, the, and, the, and they're going to be baptized. And, and John baptized with water. Um, and let me get here. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, their lives will never be the same. Uh, and so on the night, on the night of Jesus, about the promise, the promise he says here, that's where I want to connect. The, you have heard from me, okay? He, he tells them you, the promise which he said, you have heard from me. He's referring to John 15, 16, 17. And I would just want to read one of those promises. On the, night, on the night of Jesus' arrest, he assured them that a helper would, would come. And he says this, When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness 
because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay. And, and so that's about to happen. And they are going to, the Holy Spirit is going to witness and testify to them, and they are going to testify of Jesus because, because they have been with Jesus from the beginning. And from the beginning there probably means what? The beginning of the public, public right, but a specific event. Well, probably John the Baptist. Oh, okay. Yeah, because when when they choose the Matthias, they make reference who's been with us since the baptism of John. Um. Yeah, per John's account. But, yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, we'll see it. We'll, it'll come back up when, when we get here in Acts chapter 1. Uh, but it means the beginning of his public ministry. They have been with him um, since his public ministry began. Uh, so, let's see. Uh, you will bear witness of me because you have been with me from, from the beginning. That's all going to take place. Um, okay. Now, in regard to waiting for the promise of the Father, and I'm going to connect this back to the kingdom in a moment here. In, in regard to waiting for the promise of the Father, Jesus said, For John truly baptized with water but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so, John said, John the Baptist said, one so much greater than he was coming after him and would baptize Israel with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus Jesus, the greater one, now says that that time is not many days from now. And this baptism with the Holy Spirit will equip them to carry out their mission. Okay? And so verses 6-8, through eight, they realize that Jesus is speaking of something big which is about to take place what is it? Now, verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay. Interesting question. Uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So, the question is not inappropriate. Okay. Jesus has been speaking to them, what? Of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Not an inappropriate question. But he's been speaking to them pertaining to the kingdom of God, not as some far distant future event. See, he hasn't been saying, well, yeah, I'm talking about the kingdom of God and it's, and it's going to be 2,000 years from now. They'd never have asked that question, Right? They've been hearing him talk about the kingdom of God, and they've been hearing him, I believe, talk about like it's here now. And so they ask him, are you now going to restore the kingdom? 
So that's, I think, what's weak on the millennial interpretation here, because the, the millennialists want us to think that Jesus was giving them a prophecy lesson about a kingdom 2,000 years in the future. But he hasn't been doing that. I believe he's giving them what he's been giving them through his gospel, that the kingdom is going to be inaugurated now. So they say, well, great, are you going to restore Israel now? You see what I mean? You see the connection? That's not written in the notes. I should write that into the notes. So that question is appropriate because Jesus is talking about the kingdom has come among you. So they're expecting to see it. You know, now they're they're going to see it, but they still don't have the right understanding of what it looks like. And, and, that, and that's the problem. So they ask that question. Um, uh, let me get back into my notes here. Okay, so it's not an inappropriate question, but their question shows that their concept of the kingdom is still that of a Mosaic covenant theocratic arrangement with Israel reigning in her originally given borders and her political sovereignty restored. That's what they're thinking. Like a David and a Solomon. That, that's what they mean when they ask that question. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you now going to make this like during Solomon's reign? That's what they're asking them. And they're still thinking Mosaic Covenant theocratic model for the kingdom. But the problem is, is we've just transferred into the new covenant. <laughs> and that completely brings with it a new concept, a non-theocratic concept of the kingdom. And that's what they're not yet grasping. Um, their idea of the kingdom being restored is void of the fact that Messiah's reign will reign over all nations and that Messiah's reign over all nations begins with the gospel of the kingdom bringing good news to all nations as Jesus had spoken in the Olivet Discourse. And this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Okay? That's not the gospel of the millennium. This gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that we talk about, and that's going to be preached. But the apostles still don't have that vision of the kingdom, that the kingdom's going to spread throughout the entire world as the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the entire world. They, they, they still don't grasp that uh, clearly. And so, is it at this time that you shall restore the kingdom? Jesus responds without directly answering their question. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus doesn't say there is not going to be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. He doesn't say that, that there isn't going to be. He just says, in regard to the restoration they are thinking of, it's not 
for them to know. Now, instead, Jesus directs their attention a second time to the promise of the Spirit. See, they ask that question, and he comes a second time, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and and you shall be witnesses to me, yeah, in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, what? And to the ends of the earth. Okay? That's, you are to be witnesses now to the ends of the earth. So, the idea of the kingdom, their, their idea of the kingdom drew its boundaries very narrowly. Okay? The original Abrahamic promise of the land, that was their idea of the kingdom. And he's telling them they are going to go to the end of the earth and preach the gospel of the kingdom to the end of the earth. And they're not going to be giving a lecture about the millennium to the end of the earth. The gospel of the kingdom is Jesus reigns and He saves Jews and Gentiles. Now that's the inauguration. Now there's going to be a consummation. Okay? There's going to be the consummation of the kingdom at his second coming. But, but there is a kingdom now, <laughs> and it's the gospel of the kingdom being preached, and that's not lectures about the millennial kingdom. That's right now that Jesus saves Jews and Gentiles. He's Lord, his kingdom. And that's where all the parables come in. Some of you are new, new with us. That's where the kingdom parables are so important. I mean, this is kind of a crash course here. If you go back and get the kingdom parables, you'll see this real clearly. Um, but so, so they have these narrow boundaries in mind, and, and they, but they're going to receive power to go to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus has something vastly greater in mind than their narrow boundaries than they do. They have not yet understood a kingdom which includes the Gentiles. And they are content with Messiah's kingdom being limited to Israel's original physical borders. But Messiah's kingdom is much bigger than that. Now, however, the restoration described in Isaiah 49 verses 5 through 7, is about to begin with the exaltation of the messianic servant, Jesus. That's the point in history. We're at the ascension. That's our study tonight. We're at that point in history of the exaltation of the suffering servant to the right hand of God, and that's when the kingdom begins. And we'll just... Just one passage, Isaiah 49, uh, verses 5 through 7. Okay. And now the Lord says, who formed you from the womb to be his servant. This is referring to Jesus the Messiah, his, the messianic servant of, of Isaiah. The Lord says, who, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Notice, to bring back Jacob to him. 
Okay, Israel needs to be brought to repentance. Okay, that's the whole the whole message. John the Baptist and Je- repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Israel's going to be brought back to repentance to bring Israel back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. I just need to read the text. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. That's Messiah speaking. Indeed, he says, this is it. Indeed, he says, Yahweh says, it's too small a thing that you, Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That's the elect. That's the remnant. To, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. God has always had, and He always will. There are, there, there, there are ethnic Jews. God will always call some of ethnic Israelites. I believe that. He, he, he's promised never to totally reject all of Abraham's descendants. He's not promised to save all of them, but he's promised never to reject all of them. Okay? And you see it right in this text. Okay? The Messiah is going to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Now listen to this. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom, which is going to gather the preserved ones out of Israel and the Gentiles are going to be grafted in. Okay, Romans, Romans 11. And what's going to make this happen is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what's going to make this happen. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is going to convict 2,000 on the day of Pentecost and call them back. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is going to launch that mission in the book of Acts that breaks out amongst the Samaritans and finally amongst the Gentiles. And it's that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is promised in the book of Isaiah. And let me quickly show show you that okay uh, so <clears throat> uh, okay yeah Jesus is in effect says re- returning to their question I better follow my notes here returning to their question they ask Lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel Jesus, in effect, says no, but the restoration of Israel will begin. Forget about the kingdom for a minute and think about the restoration of Israel. That will begin. He is going to gather, he's going to restore, restore the preserved ones. This restoration of Israel is going to begin. So, make a distinction in your mind in this conversation between restoring the kingdom and the restoration of Israel for a moment. Keep that in mind for a second. I'm trying to make a point here. 
so Jesus, in effect, says no, but the restoration of Israel will begin not many days from now with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That is clear from Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, which is, is uh, the day of Pentecost. And what happens on that day? The Holy Spirit is poured out. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And Peter is explaining what has happened. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Right there. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So we are now in the last days. Christ is exalted. And in those last days, the last days are Christ's ascension and exaltation to His second coming. That block of time are the last days. And those last days are inaugurated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the restoration of the remnant uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the Joel 2 prophecy is being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And that's what Peter says. And I want to show you something about the Joel 2 prophecy. Peter summarizes it here, um, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What do you think all flesh means here? Say it, no. Mankind, but Jews and Gentiles. <laughs> Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, that's what all flesh means. That's exactly what the Isaiah passage said that I just read, didn't it? Right? We have a confirmation of that later in the text. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And we have all of this during the early decades of, of the church. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit um, in those days. Everybody receives the Holy Spirit. This is the new covenant, of course. This is the promise, Jeremiah 31. The promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36. All flesh, they shall all know you. Um, but that's kind of a sidetrack. I should just teach one thing at a time. Um, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood, fire, and pillars of smoke. Uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, here it is, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Gentiles are part of that whoever. Okay? And, and I think the Joel prophecy here is spanning the time between the first coming and the second coming. And we see second coming imagery probably down here in verse 30, 31. You see, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Prophecy is always di is difficult to interpret, but I, I understand this passage that, like quite a few passages in the Old Testament, 
they take this whole period of history from first coming and second coming and they compress it into a few verses. And that's what we seem to have here. We got Pentecost in verse 28 and we've got the second coming, the final second coming in verse 31. And during that time, we have the gospel being spread out through all the nations so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See? Uh, so, uh, okay. Uh, now, the other thing, and I won't turn to these passages, I've gone on pretty, pretty late. Um, on page 259 there, the Holy Spirit... Um, in these last days, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, there are three examples, three examples of these promises of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit are in Isaiah. You ought to read these. I won't do it tonight. I, they're there in your notes. Isaiah 32, 11 through 15. Isaiah 35, 1 through 6 and Isaiah 44, 1 through 5. All three of those are promises about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they all use the figure of water. Okay, And there's no doubt that the water is referring to the Holy Spirit. By the time you reach the prophecy in Isaiah 44, the water and the Spirit are explicitly connected. I will pour out water on the dry, thirsty land. What? I will pour out my spirit on your descendants. It's explicitly connected. And so this is, this is the restoration of Israel. The restoration of Israel will begin as the preserved ones or the remnant. Joe, Joe, oh, Joe 2.32. I should have read that. I didn't read the, okay, the, the 2.32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Okay, those are the preserved ones of Isaiah, uh, of the Isaiah passage, of the remnant of whom the Lord calls. And Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and 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 talks about. Uh, uh, for the promise is to you, and so forth. He lists out the promise. As many as, what does he say in, in Acts 2? As many as the Lord shall call. It's, that's it right there. It's coming straight out of Joel 2. As many as the Lord shall call, okay, will receive the promise. So, okay, so when the disciples, at, when Jesus taught them about the kingdom and they asked him the question about the kingdom, I think the teaching that Luke does about the kingdom throughout all of his gospel is what he continued to do, what Jesus continued to do uh, during those 40 days. And uh, I, I, if this is kind of new to you, I really encourage you to go back to chapter 4 and find that section where we go goes through all Jesus' concept of the kingdom in chapter 4. And I realize some of you probably don't have chapter 4 because you weren't with us, but I can email you the document that has it all in there. So, so it's 15 after. I probably have tried to do too much. But uh, do you have any questions or comments? Um,
Go ahead. I have one. Um, since you brought up the uh, some of the dispensational premillennial stuff, um, in between that Joel passage, um, in Old Testament prophecy, uh, the day of the Lord um, isn't usually in a in a good Old Testament uh, hermeneutic referring to the end of time, right? It's mm. usually referring to a particular type of a judgment or a big event that yes. God's going to do. It, it doesn't have to always. Re, 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 refer to the last day. Right, the very last that day. That is correct, that expression. It looks apocalyptic as yeah. God's saving everyone there, but it's also often um, referring to the day that Christ, is the Messiah, is going to die or suffer or save mankind is also given as an yeah. apocalyptic event. Yeah, that that is true. Yeah. So, yeah, well, it's almost anybody else. Is... Now, if you have thoughts or questions that I haven't addressed, and I'm sure there are plenty, there can be, just, you know, jot them down, don't forget them, and, and next week uh, I could field more questions on this. Uh, you can read the notes, uh, and I'm sorry to repeat myself, but chapter 4 has a section about, about the kingdom. So the outpouring, Jesus' ascension, that's where we're at, that triggers the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and he sends them out, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and that's how he refers to it. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, then and then the end will come. And so when we say the kingdom is here, we don't mean it's here and it's full, it's full blown here. It's inaugurated, it's begun, and 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 those full the full blownness is going to happen at the second at the second coming. And as far as how we get from here to there, there's a lot of, you know, whether it's all flat and we're there instantly or, or we're post-mill guys, which I am not, and we're going to get there, you know, that way. I'm, I'm an optimistic awe-mill, okay? There's not very much difference between the awe-mill position and the post-mill position. It's just how optimistic you are <laughs> about the current age. But, well, praise God, you know, however it comes out, you know, I get to choose. I don't have enough time, but the Lord's coming back <laughs> and He's going to complete this. But he, we are in His kingdom, you see. We are, we are in there now. We're, we, his, his, we are in that messianic kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For what? There is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, and, and uh, we, we haven't experienced the fullness of it that's for sure. And, and, and then, but you see, the, the Jews, I'll say this and I'll shut up and we can get out of here. But the, the, but the Jews, you see, the Jews were expecting at Messiah's coming that God would just judge the nations and destroy the nations. But no, what, what he's really doing at, Messiah, at the first coming, he's offering an offer of mercy to the nations. Okay? Not destroying them. That's the second coming when all the nations will be judged. Right now, he truly is the king of peace and he's preaching peace. He came and preached peace to those who were near and he came and preached peace to those who are far off, reference to the Gentiles. And we're living in that day at the bottom of Psalm 2. The bottom of Psalm 2 says, Now kings of the earth show wisdom, show discernment, kiss the sun, do homage to the Son. Bow down to the Son's authority. And then it says, How blessed are all those who put your trust in Him. That's a gospel invitation to the nations in Old Testament language. 
And, and we are living in the middle of that, and the church is part of that, of the, of the gospel going. So, amen. Let's pray. Father, um, wow, thank you for your plan. We don't fully understand it, but we thank you. Uh, we can see the big parts of it, uh, and that you would call us, uh, your children, and call us in the covenants and promise and graft us in as Gentiles to the wonderful promises that you have made to Israel and, and to all that come to Jesus Christ, that we are the joint heirs and we share in all these wonderful Old Testament promises, uh, the ones that you have fulfilled and the ones that you are yet going to fulfill. Lord, make us a thankful people, especially as we emphasize being thankful this weekend and, and for this great holiday uh, to set aside and, and thank you in a special way. We thank you for the good news of the kingdom because of the glorious King, your Son, Father. We pray in his name. Amen.